From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. And you're going to hear a little bit of a different sound quality from me today. We've been dealing with just a little bit of an ongoing illness from the host, and I apologize for that. I'm healthy enough to host the show remotely, and we've got two outstanding guests in our studio. And so I'm going to take you through what we are talking about now and why we are here. And I hope you will stay with us and bear with us because this is an important conversation. Our connection this hour was made in the state of Texas, where a woman was both ecstatic to be pregnant but worried about her own health. Yenny Glick was 27 years old. She had married her sweetheart, an Army Reserve specialist. She and her husband were so excited and looking forward to parenthood. But just a few weeks into her pregnancy, Yenny ended up in the emergency room. She was dealing with hypertension, dangerously high blood pressure. She knew she had diabetes. Her family worried about the impact of pregnancy on her heart. She was working to support not only her household, but her mother and siblings. She had very little money, and she would strategize how to stretch out her prescriptions, sometimes skipping days in medicines. The local hospital in Yenny's small town no longer had maternity care. Patients with means would drive another 30 to 50 miles to get to other facilities, sometimes going as far as Austin, Texas. The small staff at Yenny's local hospital got to know her from her pregnancy struggles, but they were not specialists in how to handle it. Sometimes staff would get on the phone with OBGYNs in other cities to talk through what to do. Yenny's story is reported at length in last month's edition of The New Yorker. Yenny died when she was 22 weeks pregnant. Her official cause of death was listed as hypertensive cardiovascular disease associated with morbid obesity, with pregnancy listed as a contributing factor. Yenny's family and friends have said that she should have been counseled on an approach that could have saved her life, therapeutic abortion. Doctors in many states will bring up abortion as a possible course of action if the mother is at significant risk. But in Texas, things were changing. In 2021, Texas banned abortions beyond six weeks of pregnancy. Many women don't know they're pregnant until after that point. When the U.S. Supreme Court overturned federal abortion rights in 2022, a trigger law in Texas banned all abortions other than those intended to protect the life of the mother. And so why wouldn't doctors counsel Yenny on a potentially life-saving abortion? Well, it turns out that while the law supposedly allows abortion under those circumstances, the law also incentivizes whistleblowers to call in doctors who are performing illegal abortions, and the line can get murky. As a result, no one told Yenny that it might make more sense for her and her husband to wait to start a family and concentrate on her own health first. It was never discussed, never offered, even as Yenny herself spoke about the pregnancy potentially killing her. The Texas ban has already had several effects chronicled in The New Yorker and elsewhere. First, a Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health study recently showed that following the passage of Texas's abortion ban, nearly 10,000 additional babies were born in that state. But those additional births are not the entire story. More women are giving birth in hospitals that have little or no maternity care remaining. Doctors are leaving the state to practice in places where they don't fear criminal charges in murky cases like Yenny Glick's. Writing for The New Yorker, Stefania Taladreed explains that in Yenny's small-town hospital, quote, it felt like uncontrolled chaos. Babies were being delivered in the waiting room or crowning on a stretcher in the hallway, end quote. Some doctors have stated their concerns that more women will die attempting illegal abortion or through substandard pregnancy and delivery care. And I'll quote NBC News on a separate story out of Texas just recently. A Texas woman whose fetus had a fatal diagnosis 
and who was awaiting a decision from the Texas Supreme Court about whether she would be allowed to get an abortion, said Monday that she's decided to leave Texas to get the procedure. Kate Cox, a mother of two who was around 20 weeks pregnant, found out just after Thanksgiving that her developing fetus has trisomy 18, a fatal diagnosis. Seeking to terminate the pregnancy to protect her health and future fertility, she and her husband sought a court order to block Texas's abortion bans from applying in her case. But her case has been held up in court for weeks. Molly Duane, a senior staff attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights, said, quote, if Kate can't get an abortion in Texas, who can? Kate's case is proof that exceptions don't work, and it's dangerous to be pregnant in any state with an abortion ban, end quote. And the conversation this hour is not just about one state or one law. You probably heard on NPR this week that the highest court in Alabama ruled that frozen embryos are to be considered children. Human life do the same rights and protections as any living person. As a result, a number of clinics there have halted their IVF treatments, concerned that even one error with a frozen embryo could result in manslaughter charges. A woman waiting for treatment told the New York Times that this has been agonizing. My guests have their own experience to share and their own expertise. They are not here to adjudicate every individual case. They're here to discuss how their field has been affected by these changes, how their concerns for patients maybe could guide their work or what they think about their colleagues having to work in other states and whether New York State is fully insulated from this changing legal landscape. Joining us in the studio, let me welcome Dr. Panilla Marinescu is a high-risk OBGYN provider. Dr. Marinescu, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. And Dr. Stacy Sun is an OBGYN generalist provider with a specialty in abortion and contraception. Dr. Sun, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Hi. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm going to ask both of you to describe the work that you do so the audience understands um, what your expertise lies in. Dr. Marinescu, do you want to start? Of course. Thank you. Um, so I am a high-risk OB, OBGYN, which means, and my specialty particularly is maternal fetal medicine. So that means that I care for all individuals who are pregnant who either have parental pre-existing comorbidities, um, very similar to any chronic hypertension, diabetes, cardiac disease, um, and who are pregnant, and or individuals who are pregnant whose babies also have um, varying structural differences um, or genetic differences. And my job is really to help these families walk through a pregnancy that for them that they were expecting to be normal but has completely turned around. Um, and so walking these families um, through the journey, reframing hope, reframing their goals for themselves, for their child, and for their families um, is, is an important piece of my work. Um, I also work um, and do provide abortion services um, and um, help a lot of these families, especially those who need to end their pregnancies early in the setting of either parental comorbidities or, again, fetal um, uh, abnormalities that may prevent a good quality of life. Okay, and Dr. Sun, can you describe your work? Yeah, uh, so I am an OBGYN generalist physician. I provide comprehensive reproductive care, and this is specifically also including abortion and contraception care. I completed, after my residency, I completed a two-year family planning fellowship, and that specializes in this sort of care. Um, and so I really take care of patients from like all ages, from their adolescence to their reproductive era and to their menopausal and postmenopausal era. Um, I have the privilege to take care of people and really experience that continuity of care as well. 
Well, I want to remind listeners that our guests are in our WXXI studio. The host is not because I'm getting over this cold. I'm going to be fine, but we're just dealing with tech issues. It is my fault entirely, but I really hope you can stay with this conversation. And listeners, if you want to join the conversation and add thoughts, you can do that via email, connections at WXXI.org. You can call the program toll-free. It's 844-295-TALK, 844-295-8255, or 263-WXXI for calling from Rochester, 263-9994. Let me just start with a general question. Dr. Marinescu, what, it has, been, what has it been like to see the changes in reproductive health care in the last couple of years? From my perspective, I think we're very lucky to be in a state where we are still allowed to provide comprehensive care to our patients. Um, like Dr. Sun said, it is a privilege to care for these families and to and to be able to provide all options that a family needs um, over the course, for me particularly, over the course of their pregnancy. Um, so I am deeply saddened by the state of our political climate and how things are changing um, that are limiting a person's ability to be able to choose for themselves what is the right thing for them and for their children and for their families. What about you, Dr. Sun? I First, I'd like to say that I feel very privileged to live in the country where a lot of care is, you know, generally, like, we have access to reproductive care, like, unlike other countries and those experiencing hardships right now. Um, but personally, I would say I think that Growing up in this country, reproductive health care has always been a passion of mine, an issue that I have experienced personally in my life as well as um, as you know in my career. and and I echo Dr. Marinescu's point of feeling privileged of being here in New York State and being able to provide care. But we certainly see the same anxieties, the same fear that people of all reproductive needs that needs um, come and have, they experience that here. They experience the fear of not being able to have access to abortion care one day in the future. They experience the fear of not getting the gender-affirming care that they deserve. Um, and so it, it translates in all different ways. I mean, many patients after um, Roe fell thought that abortions were banned in our country. Um, while this wasn't true, and that's not exactly what Dobbs v. Jackson had said, um, but that's what the sentiment was. And people feared that they couldn't get it. People feared that they didn't know who to turn to. And so, you know, we'd really want to see um, providers and people all over the country just try to advocate and provide this access to all. Well, and so I think it gets lost sometimes how devastating it can be to miscarry. And now you have legal questions about whether a surgical procedure is even permitted. I mean, I, I told the story of Kate Cox in, in Texas, but that's not the only case. This is not just theoretical anymore. And um, can I ask, and maybe Dr. Marinescu, I'll, I'll start with you because I know you, you work a lot on high-risk cases. For example, what is trisomy 18? Um, so trisomy 18 is um, what we would consider an aneuploidy. It is a chromosomal abnormality where there is an extra chromosome 18 in the outline of um, chromosomes that should be available to any um, uh, euploid individual. So we each have um, 23 chromosomes um, or 23 pairs of chromosomes. And for an individual um with trisomy 18, there is an extra 18 chromosome. And what this does, 
both on a genetic level and then what we would call a phenotypic level, um, which means that how the genes actually allow the structural changes to happen and what most individuals would normally look at a child and, and be able to say this is trisomy 18 or look at an ultrasound and say that it's trisomy 18. Um, are various structural differences. So there may be openings in the abdominal wall um, that allow bowel um, and other um, intra or um, abdominal contents to come out into a sac. There may be cardiac changes, um, structural cardiac differences um, that are part of this diagnosis. Um, some facial um, dysmorphisms, um, hand and feet dysmorphisms. Um, these are all changes that one would observe on ultrasound um, that may look different. Um, but in reality, these um, individuals essentially have a life-limiting diagnosis, which means that this specific genetic condition is unable, is not compatible with life. Um, there are some cases that, you know, our reader or um our listeners may go online and look to see, you know, if there are survivors of trisomy 18 um, and while they they do exist, what we don't know is whether these um, individuals have what we call trisomy 18 mosaicism, where some of their cells um, have trisomy 18 and the others are normal. Um, but most most cases of trisomy 18, um, whether or not they live hours, days, maybe a few weeks, um, essentially have a life-limiting diagnosis. Okay. And so in a case like the one in Texas, um, it, it strikes me that what is not going to be tenable going forward is a situation where individual patients will have to appeal to courts and the courts will kick a case back and forth for weeks or months. That, that's not, I would not think that that is tenable for people who have to make very difficult, very sensitive, often very emotional decisions. Do, do you see it that way, Dr. Marinescu? Absolutely. And I I. I think every family's decision regarding what they choose to do in a case of trisomy 18, for example, um, is different, right? And it's it, there's not really a, a wrong answer. So I, I I support the families who really want to be able to carry a, pr a pregnancy with trisomy 18 to term, who want to be able to spend whatever time they have with their child, you know, uh, as a means of bonding and memory making and creating um, uh, a, a unique relationship with that child. But for those families that choose not to do that and for, you know, the, the families that um, understand that, yes, this is a life-limiting diagnosis and their child is not going to have the quality of life that they you know, long-term quality of life that they would want for for a child of theirs and who want to end the pregnancy, that should be a choice for them. You know, there is this term called perinatal, perinatal palliative care that is used, and it's used most commonly now in the setting of carrying a pregnancy to term and then palliating the infant after the delivery. But in my opinion, Actually, ending the pregnancy early, if that is the family's choice, should also be considered perinatal palliative care because that is taking into consideration the family's choices and their goals and their hopes and making sure that those are what we are honoring in addition to potentially, in certain circumstances, making sure that, that an individual remains safe. Um, we discussed in, during the last hour that we were able to talk that you know pregnancy is actually a dangerous condition. Um, and in our nation, I don't think that we view that. It's it's a privilege and, a, you know, and a, almost a, well, a norm, really, to to potentially have the right to, to be able to 
conceive and carry a pregnancy to term. Um, but it is um, it is a dangerous condition. And as we saw with, you know, your example with um, Yeni, you know, there are many changes in pregnancy, physiologic changes of pregnancy, changes that come from the placenta that can create disorders that will have lifelong implications, lifelong cardiovascular implications for these patients. Well, and, and so let me just follow up the point on the Yeni Glick story, and, and I will uh, urge listeners, if you want to read more, the New Yorker story is, is pretty comprehensive, um, and it, it details a lot about Yeni Glick's background, her own life, and why her pregnancy became so quickly so high risk. Um, but the conclusion that four different independent medical professionals made when they reviewed her file, which Yeni's family freely released for them to review, was that if medical professionals had at least counseled Yeni and her husband and said, look, you've got hard decisions to make here, but given the fact that just weeks into your pregnancy, you're in the ER, you've got these medical conditions that are going to make this very difficult, that you, should, that you can consider a therapeutic abortion, getting your health in order, and, and maybe returning to the idea of starting a family later, it's not clear what Yeni would have done. It's not clear what her family ultimately would have thought of that. But it, the professionals thought that that should have been at least advised as an option, and it never was advised. It, from all we can tell, it wasn't brought up, likely because this climate now in the state of Texas is such that um, if, if the case isn't a very, very clear case of you know, sort of medical exception, that a medical professional might, be, might fear legal consequences. And so they just didn't bring this up with her. And Dr. Marinescu, um, I, I don't know if you want to talk about that specifically, and if you don't, I, I respect it. But I do want to ask you is how you, as someone who's so sensitive with your patients, walk through that conversation, especially when you know they want to start a family. I, it's a very hard conversation to have. Um, and it is probably one of the most meaningful conversations I think I have with my patients. The approach is really to say, as you said, we have some hard decisions to make here. You will be supported regardless of what choice you make and what choice your family makes together. But I want you to know that there are options. Um, and that's that's my gateway into helping them to understand risk because pregnancy is all about risk assumption. It, there are very few conditions that are contraindicated specifically in pregnancy. Um, and so there are many combinations of different comorbidities that could, you know, result in accumulation of risk. Um, and so it is really up to the family and really the job of the provider to be able to share all of those risks and then to be able to follow up with the options of care um, for that family. Well, I mean, all of the data that I have indicates that the vast majority of abortion happens well, well before we're in weeks 21, 22, 31, 32. And that when when you start talking about a late-term abortion, you're talking about these heart-wrenching decisions. And Dr. Marinescu, do you think that that gets lost sometimes in the conversation about the reality of abortion and reproductive health needs and the, and the safety of uh, of a mother? Does that get lost sometimes in terms of what what is actually happening in practice versus what we might see in social media, cable news, et cetera? Yeah, I, I can only speak to what we do for New York State and for our institution. We um, are 
at this point, 23 and 6 is really the, the latest that we are um, currently um, performing abortions. But it is a it is a decision and it is a hard decision because of the, you know, abortion, I think, in general, is much safer than carrying a pregnancy with several comorbidities to term statistically. But the surgical procedure itself becomes more complicated the farther along you are. Um, many, actually, many of our abortions are first trimester abortions. And because we, you know, are a referral center, we, we see the second trimester. But um, but it is far more, well, it used to be far more common than, than most people think. Well, and maybe I'll ask Dr. Sun just to sort of elaborate on that. And, and I'm just curious to know, given the work that, that you do, um, and, and given the heat of the public discourse on this issue, especially over the last couple of years, is there something that you hear that is most often confused or blatantly wrong that frustrates you? Many things. <laughs> I laugh because, I mean, abortion is so stigmatized. There's so many things. I mean, I think the biggest thing right now is I just kind of want to affect, talk about how abortion bans affect everybody. Um, in abortion bans affect this specific pregnancy loss topic that we're talking about today. Um, that, you know, what we're talking about for the Mifepristone case, for example, you know, Mifepristone is commonly used in miscarriage management, and I use it all the time. Um, that, and the other, there's misconceptions about fetal pain as well, and that's a very controversial topic. There's misconceptions about fertility and future fertility, and, and I know for, we know for pretty much a fact that, you know, it doesn't affect future fertility, um, that there's no very minimal or no consequence to the patient. Of course, the further along somebody is, the more likely they have complications. Um, but there is so many different misconceptions. I can go on and on about them. <laughs> well, um, and that's partially why our guests are here. And I want to remind listeners here that uh, we'll share some of your thoughts, if you have them, uh, on this topic as we go throughout the hour. Thank you, listeners, for hanging in there with a host who's getting over a cold. And I'm I'm hosting this program from afar, and the audio quality is not exactly where uh, I would prefer it, but that's my fault. And thank you for, for hanging in there. Our guests are, are um, sharing their expertise as we discuss the changing legal landscape of reproductive care in this country um, and what that means for patients really around this country, but also whether we are, you know, for lack of a better term, fully insulated here. You just heard Dr. Stacy Sun, an OBGYN generalist provider, with a specialty in abortion and contraception. Dr. Panola Marinescu is here, a high-risk OBGYN provider. Um, we're going to take our only break of the hour. And when we come back, I want to talk uh, about, well, we've got some emails to share. Um, and I want to talk about um, some of how our guests see New York State's place in this. Because as they've said, it is it is not a, a state that has seen change. You've heard the governor and others talk about making sure that that doesn't change here. I don't know if that means that there will be an increase in patients coming this way um, and what they expect in the future, but there's a lot to, to work through with our guests. So thank you for hanging in there with the host. We'll take this only break and we'll come right back on Connections. I'm Megan Mack. Coming up in our second hour, astrophysicist Adam Frank says humans are poised to embark upon their most important journey yet. Using new tools to explore the universe, he says humans will finally have a true scientific view of if, where, and when extraterrestrial life exists. 
It's the subject of his new book, The Little Book of Aliens. That's next in a special rebroadcast of Connections. This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. There is new data on how many patients are traveling out of state for abortions in this country. According to the latest data from the Guttmacher Institute's monthly abortion provision study, the proportion of patients traveling to other states to obtain abortion care has doubled in recent years, reaching nearly one in five in the first half of 2023. So about a year ago, about 20% of abortions in this country were performed um, after patients traveled over state lines. A year later, the expectation is that that number is going to be even higher. So if we assume it's one-fifth to one-quarter already, that's a lot of people who have to travel. It also means there are people who won't be able to travel to get that care. And you see that, that really changing picture here because sometimes when you hear from um, folks who oppose abortion, they talk about, well, we're going to see a lot more births. And by one study already, as we mentioned, that is true. 10,000 additional births in the state of Texas since the ban there a couple of years ago. Um, but there's also an influx of babies being born in much more dangerous situations in hospitals without um, maternity wards and, and labor and delivery care and literally doctors on the phone with other hospitals saying, what do I do? I mean, that's, that is what the landscape in Texas already looks like. Um, and uh, a lot of folks expect that to be the case going forward. So I want to ask both of our guests to kind of talk about two things. I want to start by asking what it really means to be insulated, if we are insulated, if they're seeing an influx in care, and if they are concerned for their colleagues in other states who you know, may have to make decisions on whether they continue practicing there and what that means for a population of patients that might not have really good uh, reproductive health care. So, uh, Dr. Sun, can I start with you? What does it mean to be insulated in this kind of landscape? And, and is New York State insulated? Well, I would say, that unfortunately, we are not insulated from such events. Um, you know, what affects one of us in this country affects all of us. And, you know, we are seeing patients from elsewhere. Uh, you know, as soon as uh, Dobbs v. Jackson occurred, we started to see patients from Texas, from places that have banned abortions, from um, especially of people who have ties to Rochester. They have been coming here and feeling safe here. And uh, so it's just one of those things. We are not insulated from it. We have patients coming from all sorts of places coming to get their care with us. And this could be for just a desire to not have their pregnancy or um, any reason such as, you know, having a fetal anomaly or having any maternal or parental issues or like comorbidities that Dr. Marinescu often sees. Um, and as to your Second question, uh, we definitely feel a lot of camaraderie and feel very, um, you know, sad for our colleagues in other states because, you know, OBGYNs all over the country, providers, you know, family medicine providers who provide abortions all over the country are experiencing this too, are experiencing the secondary trauma of feeling like they can't advocate for their patients, feeling that they can't help their patients in the way that they deserve. You know, with so many of these states saying exceptions of maternal health, that what does that even mean? That is the biggest question. And 
Does it mean that someone has to almost die? Does it mean that their blood pressure or their pulse has to be a certain amount? Every place has a different definition, and that intrinsically is a huge problem. We are not helping our patients. We are not helping our patients to like placing the restrictions on them. We're not helping our providers to give them that care. You were talking about, you know, the patient uh, Yenny who lived in Texas and who didn't really have great access to care. First of all, we also know that maternal mortality has skyrocketed in these places that have these abortion bans. That's another study that's been shown. And for patients like Yenny who experience these things, like how can their providers feel safe to prov- to even bring up this topic at this point, knowing that they could be criminalized? And that to me is tragic. I feel so you know, so devastated for my colleagues to to feel like they can't take care of their patients because that's what we came into this field to do is that we came to really see and help people to advocate for them and, you know, to think that like you can't even do your basic job. It's it's hard. It's <laughs> it's there's no other way to say it. It's so hard. Um, and I feel so lucky to be in this state but I feel so much pain and fear for them for what they must be going through. And we, I have colleagues who live in Texas. Um, you know, we have, we have colleagues who have been criminalized or attempted to be criminalized. And, uh, and they ex- experience a lot of personal trauma from this. Have they considered moving out of state? Yes, definitely. It's such a self-conflicting moment for these people because they feel connected to their community as we all do. You know, you might grow up in Texas, you might grow up in Georgia, you might grow up in Louisiana, and you feel connected. This is your family. This is your home. These are the people you decided to serve and be part of, and yet you can't do what you want to do. And so I do not judge at all when someone wants to leave because they can't take care of their people. But I also like am, admire so much those that do and decide to stay and fight for the people that they are committed to. Yeah. Dr. Marineski, do you want to weigh in on that too? Yes. I've actually had colleagues who have had to move state and these are, you know, maternal field medicine providers. And I, I think, again, as I said before, I'm deeply saddened by the fact that this is where we are as a nation, um, you know, to, to struggle to provide the comprehensive care that each patient deserves. Um, And I respect every individual who is fighting this battle in their own way, whether or not they stay or choose to leave, um, because each, you know, individual has their own priorities and um, has to be able to continue to serve in the way that they, you know, believe is is the best way. Um, And I'm you know, I think we are lucky in New York State to have all of the rights that we currently do, but I am not oblivious to the fact that we may lose these rights and that we may also be in the same position as our colleagues in other states. And I'm frightened. I This is the work that I chose to do, and I am frightened if I am going to get to a point where I can't do this for my patients. We're talking to a couple of medical professionals who are lending their expertise as we talk about the legal landscape of reproductive health care and abortion. Dr. Panola Marinescu, a high-risk OBGYN provider. Dr. Stacy Sun, an OBGYN generalist provider with a specialty in abortion and contraception. And listeners, uh, I've been apologizing all hour just for 
not only my voice, but the fact that I couldn't join my guests who are in the WXXI studio. I'm hosting the program from afar to keep everyone safe there. Um, and we're working on the audio quality, but please forgive the host and thank you for hanging in. Let me, let me read a few comments from, from listeners for our guests here. Uh, Tim, Tim writes to say, Tim's talking about the Alabama story. So I want to remind uh, listeners that uh, you might've heard on NPR that, uh, that in Alabama, the state's high court recently decided that frozen embryos are to be considered children, to be considered uh, do the same rights and protections as human beings. And so a number of clinics have debated or, or, or paused or shut down IVF treatment because the concern is any destruction of, of an embryo, even inadvertently, could be could lead to manslaughter charges. And um, so Tim writes in to say, uh, Evan, why is the IVF situation considered to be a problem? If clinics were mishandling frozen embryos in the past, won't this make sure they finally show the proper care? It doesn't make IVF illegal. That is from Tim. And I'm going to ask both of our guests if they want to decide who wants to weigh in first. But if you want to respond to Tim's question, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'll weigh in. Um, you know, this case was made specifically actually against abortion bans. And so it's hard to think of it that way. But, you know, this is a move towards fetal personhood and, you know, when the Alabama Supreme Court decided to establish that embryos have human rights, it's really to use to defend full abortion bans. Like once an embryo is a person, you can't really justify any exceptions for abortion bans. And so abortion bans, IVF, reproductive care, they're all intricately you know, connected. There's not siloed People who have gone through infertility, going through IVF, they also have had abortions. People who have children have had abortions. People, everybody has abortions. One in four of us in our lifetime will have an abortion. And so this specific case was created specifically against abortion bans. And so um, the whole, unfortunately, the whole point of it is to kind of combat abortion bans. And what What's happened now is that, like you said, um, these fertility clinics have shut down for fear of criminalization. And that is a, you know, devastating effect on the patients who really desire their pregnancies, who are midway through their cycle, who needed an embryo transfer. They have now experienced loss thanks to this abortion ban. And so for circling back to how abortion bans affect pregnancy loss, IVF, pregnancy loss, abortion bans... They're not different. Dr. Marinescu? I would only echo Dr. Sun's comments. I think that they're, you know, to, to br- again, to bring it back to pregnancy loss, you know, these individuals who are, you know, who have gone through years of struggle to try to build a family and who are choosing in vitro fertilization as their way to do this um, have just lost everything, right? And, you know, an embryo is... Their cell, it's a cell, two cells, right? Like, and um, as it or as it starts to develop more cells, sure, but it cannot survive without being implanted, right? And so there, there is a, a degree of, you know, I, I think it, it is gray. It is all gray, and I think we just have to accept that it's gray. That every individual may choose to look at an embryo and decide for themselves what they think that embryo is, but the. In terms of facts, you know, the embryo is not by itself able to become a child unless it is implanted. And many individuals, you know, bleed, you know, every month and um, 
release eggs and they release, you know, potential embryos that that didn't implant. Um, Is that going to be homicide now? Yeah, and I hope you can hear me with a little bit better sound quality. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that there's so much uncertainty about what these laws portend for future cases. But um, I will say that uh, the Republican lawmakers who have pushed for more restrictions on abortions have said that they will carve out exceptions for IVF and that there, that there will not be you know, a, a risk for patients who need IVF. But I, I don't know how you do that because if you are truly saying that an embryo, a frozen embryo, is the same as, as a child and deserves the same protections, then I don't know how you wouldn't criminalize any single mistake. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Dr. Marinescu, this is not my specialty. You can hear how clumsy I am in the question. But I don't know how you could say, well, carve out an exception for IVF, but by the way, that's a child that deserves the same rights, and expect clinics to not be paralyzed by it. Agreed, uh, 100%. I think that there is, like, let's, for example, take um, the um, approach of genetic testing, right? Um, there are many couples actually do IVF because they are they have a genetic condition that they do not want to pass on to their child. Um, and there is the ability now with the technology and the advances that we have to be able to do what's called pre-implantation genetic testing, where an embryo is created and then on a certain, you know, um, at a certain time frame, they are able to sample the embryo and pull um, uh, genetic material and test that material to ensure that any embryo that is implanted subsequently, um, you know, does not have the condition that is being um, uh, tested for. Um, and so these, you know, there, there is always a risk when you biopsy an embryo in that way for that. And now with what's happening in the political climate of, of Alabama, you know, if there is all of that testing might act, I mean, it will go away, you know, and um, because it could potentially, you know, damage an embryo. Um, but that that's the statistics of, you know, trying to actually come up with, you know, the three or four good embryos that, that uh, you know, a couple will have. You need to start with several eggs. You need to start with it. Then you need to get, you know, several, you know, embryos. And then you need to sample several of those embryos to come up with the, the you know, embryos that are going to be implanted. That That is just a statistical process that needs to happen. Uh, well, let's clear up something that I think is confusing. Dallas, who writes in and says, doctors are calling other doctors for questions about babies being born. Doctors, uh, he's referring to the story of Jenny Glick's hospital, her local hospital in Texas, does not have labor and delivery services anymore. And so doctors there have gotten on the phone with doctors in Austin and basically said, talk me through something for a patient who's having an emergency. So he says, well, doctors are calling other doctors for questions about babies being born, but we're way better at doing abortions. That's weird to me. Uh, Dr. Sun, what would you say to that? I would say... You know, all doctors are trained differently, um, and some people are trained as OBGYNs who can, or high-risk doctors like Dr. Marinescu, who can take care of these high-risk patients. And some doctors can be trained for abortions, and not they're not all the same. And so, you know, those of us who have been trained, it really depends on the situation, where you are. So what we've been seeing is actually these healthcare deserts where 
you know, providers aren't there. And so only certain doctors are there. Maybe there's an emergency doctor who can take care of a, you know, otherwise uncomplicated, healthy patient um, and can deliver a baby. But there are so many patients out there that have so many different issues that deserve care. And so doctors are not created equal, not because they're not good enough, but because there are so many, so like diverse group of people and networks. Also, like the truth is that like the more abortion is criminalized, the more, you know, people are not going to be able to provide abortion care and therefore there's going to be actually fewer people to provide abortions. So, you know, really like maybe the patient could have gotten access in Texas when she was provided with the option or maybe she would have been sent to a different institution or to a different state. And so we don't really actually know the answer to that question, unfortunately. Um, Yeah. Dr. Marinescu? And I would just add, you know, pregnant patients, you know, are getting much more complex in the number of comorbidities that they have. People are just getting sicker, or at least that's how it seems to me, maybe anecdotally. Um, But so they're coming in with several comorbidities that add up to a lot of risk in pregnancy. And you need you know, several years of additional training to be able to recognize these things and to know how to be able to care for them um, in the setting of pregnancy physiology. Um, so it's like going through an internal medicine residency program all, you know, in addition to, you know, your OBGYN training. And that's a lot of training for a lot of people. And so not everybody does this. Um, and, you know, your, you know, your baseline training, you know, should, yes, be good enough to help you identify at least sick and not sick and how, you know, how you can start to care for some of these, um, you know, sort of uh, broad, broader conditions. But the you need specialized people to be able to identify the, you know, the harbingers and the, you know, the the rare things that happen that unfortunately pregnancy brings out in, in people to be able to provide good care. And I'm, I'm actually really happy that those providers in um, Texas are reaching out because they know what they can provide for these patients and they know when they need help. And I think from, from a medicine perspective, like that's what we do all the time. You know, ob- obstetrics is a field that has you know, limited data at best. We don't have, you know, um, several randomized control trials going on in pregnancy because nobody wants to do trials in, you know, on pregnant individuals. And, you know, so all of the the counseling that we do is really based on the data that we have from the studies that we have, but also, you know, trying to collate and extrapolate and really help individualize care. Um, And that's something that needs collaboration. Um, So I actually applaud those individuals who are reaching out. Yeah, I would agree with that. I really like that these doctors are reaching out and um, to really, you know, have that collegiality and to share experiences to take care of our patients. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing that these people are trying to take care of their patients in the best way they can at that moment. You know, I can only hope that all physicians do that. Um, you know, I've always said that, like, I, when I take my kid to the doctors, like, please don't treat me like a doctor. I'm not a pediatrician. I don't know anything about children, so please help me. Um, and so I, it's just a different field. Um, Dr. Sun, tell me if I'm, my read on this then is correct as I try to understand the effects of the laws already. Again, we're trying to move out of out of 
supposition and theory and into observing what's actually happening. And so if you just take Texas, when you go from a landscape where abortion is an option and then you change it to where it is not an option, what we're seeing is what will happen is there will be some people who attempt uh, illegal abortions, and that is uh, obviously going to be less regulated and uh, with a higher risk of danger. There will be some people who will travel out of state. Uh, Wealthy people won't be affected hardly at all. They will find the care that they need somewhere, whether it's in state or out of state. Um, There will be more babies born overall, but more babies born in situations where uh, there is more poverty, but also uh, being born in medical situations that aren't suited for maternity, labor, and delivery care, Mm -hmm. like we're seeing in smaller and more rural areas that already had sort of declining departments there. And now, now if you're already practicing there and you don't feel safe as an OB there, maybe you leave. And so more babies born, but less staffing and support for it. And so it's a very complex picture, but I think that that is a way of describing if you're going to kind of divide up some of the effects, that's what it looks like to me. Is that right, Dr. Sun? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. It's, you know, one affects the other, and then there's subsequent effects that keep rolling along. And really just like what happens is that it's our patients who are the lowest socioeconomic status, our patients who are black, indigenous, people of color, people, those are the people who are most affected by these bans. Our wealthy people can travel, they have the means, they can do that, Um, but most people cannot. And most people cannot afford um, money just to go to groceries. Most people need, you know, need money for childcare. How are they going to go to another state to get an abortion that they need if they can't have anybody take care of their current kid? Um, And so it's just... You know, I feel for all these patients. And and what happens is, like you said, is patients living in these places that don't have adequate health care, they are the ones who are going to be hit with the highest maternal mor- morbidity and mortality, like I said before. These people are going to mm-hmm. experience most of the medical issues. They are most likely to die. Um, they That means so many, like uh, their own children not having a parent. Hey, that's just devastating to me to feel like the subs- the unintended or intended consequences, <laughs> depending on who you're talking to, about mm. for these people. And that's what breaks our hearts. Gene writes to say, I'm listening today today's show as the aunt of a family member who recently had a fetus diagnosed with trisomy 18 at about 16 weeks. No one in our family ever had a problem like this, and it was so shocking. They opted to terminate the pregnancy. Uh And she goes on to say um, it was a difficult and personal decision involving a lot of tears. I'm an RN, and years ago I had an 18-week miscarried fetus, so perfect and tiny. That image stays with me. But I remain pro-choice and supportive of personal decisions like this. That is from Jean. Dr. Marinescu, maybe some final thoughts from you as we look ahead here. I don't know what you expect next in this. I've, I've given up predicting politics for sure. But every state that gives the individual citizens a vote on this issue, we've seen the same result, and that's for protecting abortion rights and reproductive health care. We've got about one minute left here. What do you, what do you expect next, and, and what do you um, – maybe what are you concerned about, or what are you, what are you looking at next? I'm actually going to answer this question as more of an ask um, to the audience that we are speaking with um, today. You know, we – 
I think that it is important to share stories like the one that Jean just shared with us and, you know, the, the ones that have been shared before and that will come in the future. These these are the heart of what make us up as, as individuals. And every family goes through their own personal stories and their own, you know, ways of feeling, you know, this this type of trauma. Um, but if we don't engage in conversation with one another, if we don't engage in education for, you know, our um, providers, for our community, um, this this topic is going to be steered in, in, in one direction. And, um, you know, we, we respect all opinions. Everybody who has written, you know, in this hour, you know, has a right to their own opinion. And we, we are really here to just share our own opinion and, and what our our thoughts are. But we do respect those that come from um, from others. And we, we want to have this conversation. We want to engage um, and, and make it a conversation conversation to continue. Dr. Penilla Marinescu, a high-risk OBGYN provider, thank you so much. I can't tell you how many of your colleagues have told me how highly regarded your work is. Thank you very much for being on the program today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And the same goes for Dr. Stacy Sun, OBGYN generalist provider with a specialty in abortion and contraception. We so much appreciate your time, Dr. Sun. Thank you for having me. And listeners, thanks for hanging in with the host. We've got more connections coming up in just a second.